Starcourt Study Hall contains spoilers for seasons one through four of Stranger Things and for Stranger Things The First Shadow. This episode may also contain graphic content and language not suitable for all listeners. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts unless otherwise stated, and all content and characters are property of Netflix and the Duffer Brothers. I'm Amanda. I'm Marina. And, and this, this is Starcourt Star Study, Study Hall. It's not the morning for everybody, I guess. No, (laughs) but for us it is. Well, brochachos, we are in for a treat today. Ooh. Yes. This is going to be a Just the Facts episode about the history of cannabis and its legalization in the United States. This is so exciting. It is exciting. I actually learned a lot doing research for this, so let's jump right in. So we know, of course... Cannabis use is very prevalent in season four, comes up quite a lot, and we don't really know yet what exactly the purpose of its appearance is, if anything, but I think it's definitely worth a Just the Facts episode because it might become important. We don't know. It's also relevant. It also is. Right now. Just like the real world. Yeah. Yes. So before we dive in... My just the facts always have disclaimers. I, I don't. I don't know why. I just most feel, of us do this, right? I feel like it's like you know the thing that we mm. always do. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Yeah, like over-explaining, but whatever. Anyway, so disclaimers, and these ones are for legal reasons, really. Marina and I live in New Jersey, which is a state with legal recreational use for those twenty-one and older. Cannabis is unfortunately not federally legal yet. If it is not medically or recreationally legal in your state, please do not get caught doing anything illegal. Okay, next. On a more serious note, the history of cannabis in this country, like most parts of this country's history, has a prevalent theme of racism throughout. Definitely a lot more than I can really get into in one of our episodes, but just know that there is going to be racist themes that do come up, so just be aware of that. And... As always in our Just the Facts episode, I will be focusing solely on the United States' history with cannabis. Okay. All right. So, let's get into it. According to the Montana State Government website, (laughs) I don't know where we ended up today. (laughs) We're just diving right in with the weird sources. (laughs) Sheepinfo.org. I will never get over sheepinfo.org. Same. So... Montana State Government website. Cannabis is an annual dioecious, which means unisexual, flowering plant. To elaborate, it germinates from a seed, reaches sexual maturity, reproduces, and dies all within one year of growing wild. That's so uh, sad. I know, right? <laughs> it has such a short lifespan. In this document I found on the Montana State website, there was like a whole illustration of like this life cycle. It's oh. very, when, when it's cultivated in like, you know, a greenhouse setting, I guess. Mm. It is, like, very intense. I had no idea. Like, each stage 
takes like anywhere from like a few weeks to actually a few months. Wow. I know. It's a pretty intense plant to grow, apparently. Hmm. So cannabis and hemp are technically the same plant. This is something I've been unclear on my entire life and like too afraid to ask. So <laughs> you know those things <laughs> where it's happen? Like, well, you know those things where it's like it, it's so obvious to everyone else. And at some sure. point you're like, I'm going to seem like such a dummy if I don't know what this is. But I'm sharing this with you all in case you were in the same boat as me. So I hemp, had hemp no idea. Can, yep. Same. Hemp and <laughs> cannabis. Same thing. But hemp usually refers to cannabis that is being grown for non-drug purposes. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. So I I learned that. So cannabis has been being cultivated since the pre-Neolithic period in Japan and China for its fibers, possibly as a food source, though I cannot imagine that would be very tasty, and potentially for its psychoactive uses. So it's, yeah, it's been going back a while. The cultivation of cannabis has been a part of American history as far back as the 1600s when Jamestown colonists were ordered to grow and export 100 hemp plants to England for what I'm sure were normal government reasons. Yeah, and I just Googled the Neolithic period. Mm -hmm. This is 7,000 to 1,700 BCE. Yeah, really long time ago. This is like there's a picture of a wheel here because that's when it was invented. (laughs) It was like weed... Then the wheel. The wheel. (laughs) In that order. That's how they they were able to garner the creativity to create the wheel, actually. Absolutely. Without the weed, they would not have invented the wheel. We've figured it out, everyone. (laughs) So, actually, George Washington grew hemp as one of his three main crops as a farmer. Pretty interesting. I'm sure Uh, he did. Yep. For the most part, hemp was used for ropes and fabric making. And later down in this document, I have a a picture of how it's like pulled apart to make fibers because I could never picture that in my brain. And it's like, it's really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, ropes and fabric making was like the main thing. But then in 1850, William O'Shaughnessy, who was an Irish physician, began introducing cannabis into Western culture for medicinal purposes. And so it began appearing in American pharmacies. Wow. Pretty cool. So he spent a lot of his time as a physician in India where he was able to use cannabis and its like derivatives to be able to stop epileptic convulsions and other ailments. So he was proving that it had medical value in 1850. May I point out? (laughs) (laughs) 1850. Okay. My great grandmother was not born yet. 1850. All right. So also fun fact about this guy, William O'Shaughnessy, he is also responsible for modern intravenous therapy. Yeah, that's right. So when you go to the hospital and they stick you in the arm with an IV. Wow. Yeah, he invented that. Pretty cool. Specifically fluid replacement therapy for like dehydrated people. Yeah, pretty cool. Thanks. Thanks, William. I know. By only three years later in 1853, Cannabis was considered a fashionable narcotic, in quotes. By the 1880s, cannabis smoking lounges were starting to pop up and they were becoming more popular in like major cities. Pretty cool. That's not even a thing that really exists today. I was going to say something must happen here. Yeah. (laughs) No. Yeah. Gets different. So this was around the same time that the United States government was starting to work on tougher pharmaceutical restrictions. Okay. So, yeah, that's what that's 
the, the first. All I'm right. already mad. <laughs> so in 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed in the United States. So this required that certain drugs, cannabis included, be clearly labeled with its contents, which seems very reasonable. Yeah. Additionally, many states were making cannabis and other narcotics available by prescription only, which again seems reasonable. Sure. Before this, a bunch of states decided that certain medications just needed the label poison. So progress, I guess. It wasn't just labeled poison, general poison. It was just, you know, labeled with what it was. So that's good. So they went, they went from labeling things poison to being a little bit more specific. Yes. Okay. Yes. Got not, it. Not just poison. Thanks. Um, <laughs> however, of course, there were a bunch of people who still thought cannabis specifically was way too easy to get a hold of. By 1914, several states listed cannabis as a habit-forming drug. And during that same year, the first known cannabis-driven drug raid occurred in Sonora Town, L.A. That's a, a neighborhood in L.A. that is heavily populated by Mexican-Americans and was at that time. Mm-hmm. So for a little background on this, right after the Mexican Revolution in 1910, the U.S. saw an influx of immigration from Mexico So many of those who fled Mexico found work on farms. Cannabis use was very popular among the workers on these farms because it was a plant that was naturally grown in Mexico. So it was something very, very popular there. Tensions began to rise with the smaller farms who could not produce at the same rate. And so, you know, that's where some of the whole tension of job stealing starts to come from that becomes a very popular rhetoric in our country and then in the 20s this got even worse when the great depression hit and jobs were incredibly hard to find um, to this day this rhetoric is, yeah. is still used right like what do you mean these cannabis smoking immigrants are working and we can't they stole our jobs really mm-hmm. really the americans are gonna get into these fields yeah i doubt it come on but now. also you want to talk about people stealing people's jobs yeah All right, so this is my favorite section, um, my favorite section title that I've ever named, and it's called Harry Asslicker and the (laughs) Beginning of the War on Drugs, and I put a wand emoji at the end because this is... (laughs) Harry Potter and the Asslicker of Drugs. Yep, that's him. (laughs) So... That's just a nickname I invented for this next guy. Oh, you in, you made up this nickname. I didn't see it anywhere. I don't know if I made it up, but I did not see it anywhere. If so. you didn't see it anywhere, it sounds made well, up. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm the first to to do this. Okay, but, but I but I did I did come up with it. Thank you. Okay, so in 1930, <laughs> a new division of the federal government was created called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which, by the way, spelling the word bureau so many times in this mm. document really was driving me up a wall. That's a lot of vowels next I to each other. that word. I hate it. Bureau. Terrible. Which we will abbreviate from here on out to the FBN. So Harry Anslinger was appointed to run this. That's his real name. I see. He was the worst, and we will get to him. But... The Bureau's main purpose was to crack down on opium use and smuggling. Seems good on the surface. Smuggling. So here's here's a little about Harry. Fun fact, he was appointed to this position by his wife's uncle. So I'm sure that he was the best man for the job. Nepotism. Yep. Uh, so this guy hated drugs <laughs> like Henry Creel hates societies. Okay. That is a passion. Hates them. 
hates them so much. All drugs? Yes. It starts to seem like he hates cannabis specifically, but he, okay. he really just doesn't like any of them. Okay. So, okay. So one of the first things that this guy did in his position in the FBN was to start compiling, like, essentially anecdotal evidence of cannabis's influence on violence and crime. So basically, this man invented conflating causation and correlation, okay? Because remember, everybody, just because someone smokes cannabis and does a crime doesn't mean that they are correlated. But this guy said they are. Okay. So he Um, was like, if you smoke, you are more likely to commit crimes. Or if you smoked and committed a crime, it was because you smoked. Yes, essentially both of those things. Got it. Yes. And everyone was like, no, that's not how that works at all. One prominent doctor named Dr. Walter Bromberg was like, no, crime and substance abuse are linked, but not in the way that you think. And this isn't really news and it doesn't make cannabis the reason that they committed a crime. The American Medical Association actually published a study of 30 different pharmacy and drug professionals and 29 out of 30 disagreed with the proposal to ban cannabis. Screw that one guy. But uh, Harry didn't care about any of this. He was just like, I have my 2,000 stories over here of all these criminals who smoked cannabis. So Mm -hmm. I got all the evidence I need. In 1934, the Uniform State Narcotic Drug Act was passed. Its purpose was to get all of the United States on the same page when it came to drug laws and enforcement. Basically, it was so that all the states would have to enforce the same narcotics laws all the same ways uniformly. Okay. Yeah. So at first, only nine states agreed to this. President Roosevelt supported adoption of the act in many more states in a message on Columbia Radio Network in March of 1935. So the president got on the radio and was like, hey, all you states. Hey, all you people. Hey, Hey, all you people. people. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he did. And, And then Harry whatever ass liquor yep that guy launched a (laughs) nationwide media campaign declaring that cannabis use can cause temporary insanity oh no not temporary insanity the advertisements featured young people smoking marijuana and then being violent committing crimes or just straight up dying from from cannabis use just like they smoke and they die that's how it's a lot of nuance missing here i Mm -hmm. feel like so much Um, Well, it worked. And shortly after, every single state agreed and signed on for this act. Propaganda is wild. Let me tell you. In 1937, here it comes, the Marijuana Tax Act passed, which, by the way, marijuana used to be spelled with an H. Instead of a J? Yeah, I'm guessing this was probably before the white people discovered that Spanish uses a J for an H sound. That just sounds like they Americanized it. Yeah, welcome to my life, okay? I have to go to CVS and go, Jimenez. Yeah, Because <laughs> if I say Jimenez, they an type H. an H. Yeah. Yeah. The people in America were like, other languages exist? What? And no. the letters sound different in them? No, unacceptable. But mm. anyway, so this essentially completely banned the sale and use of cannabis outside of prescribed medical or research reasons. So... That was basically the big, we're done with cannabis. The United States, it is federally illegal, no more. Um, There's only a couple of accepted medical uses, but that's it. 
And even so, a lot of the doctors on the American Medical Association actually really opposed this act because they had to purchase this cannabis for their patients that they were still serving. And there was now a huge tax on it that they had to pay. Yeah. So it made it federally illegal, which is still in place today in some states. 1937. 1937. Yeah. Wild. Even though there is ample evidence that this act was heavily influenced by stakeholders in timber and other industries that may be threatened by the hemp industry. And I'm not going to go too far into that because we will be here all day. That deserves its own episode, honestly. But I will just say that is probably not a conspiracy theory. That is probably very true. Doesn't sound like a conspiracy at all. No, no. There were there were a lot of stakeholders that were very close to Harry Anslinger who benefited from this greatly. So, mm. hmm. Anyway, despite all of this, reports of cannabis use actually continued to rise by 1937. And before this time, it had mostly been confined to the Southwest near Mexico, which, as we know, Mexican immigrants were a huge part of popularizing it in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Here's the here's the the thing about Harry. He was a huge racist, okay? He was a huge racist for the 30s. So racist actually that conservatives. This guy was a democrat by the way. Yeah. Things have changed a lot. But he was so racist that conservatives at the time were calling for his resignation in the 30s. That's wow. how horrified they were by his racism. So, I've listed a couple of terrible things he said and I am not going to say them word for word but I will just give you some examples and let you use your imagination uh, for words that I will not say. Fair warning most of the following quotes are very offensive and uh, Marina and I obviously do not agree with any of the following that was ever spewed out of this dude's gross old mouth so I will kind of blank out some things. So here's a quote from Harriet Anslinger. He said, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are, N-word, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with N-words, entertainers, and many others. Here is another one. Marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month, and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse of horrid specters. Hashish makes a murderer who kills for the love of killing out of the mildest-mannered man who ever laughed at the idea that any habit could ever get him. That is a very strange sentence. Right? (laughs) It's a storehouse of horrid specters mildest mannered man who ever laughed at the idea that any hat what i know okay um yeah yeah this guy was a huge racist like really really bad he was just saying this out in public on the radio it was the 30s but dang that is really racist yeah and i only include this because it is really important to remember that everything about the history of cannabis in this country is about race. It is. Like, it's just an integral part of this whole entire history. So war on drugs in general. Yeah. Right. It's about race. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that it is important to include that these were the people making decisions. Like, this is what is going on in this man's brain, and he is making decisions for our country in the 30s. So by now, of course, makes sense. Hemp farming in the country is way down, except... Small problem in the 40s, 
something happened that made the government realize that this was going to be a problem. Because remember how I mentioned that hemp is really good at making ropes and sails and things like that? Mm -hmm. Well, in 1942, World War II happened. And yeah, so hemp farming was kind of back on the map. Farmers had to get a special certificate in order to be allowed to grow it. Mm -hmm. And here is that picture, which I think is so cool, that shows how they like spin the hemp plant into fibers. I never understood how that worked. So I just thought that that was so cool. Yeah. Really wild tidbit here, but I'm not going to go too far into this, but something I thought was interesting at this time. Do you remember Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia? From our <laughs> from our arcade episode. <laughs> I just want to say Amanda's notes say the guy who hated pinball. <laughs> he did. He hated pinball so much. I remember that guy. Yeah. He was the mayor of New York City from 1934 to 1946. He did ban pinball in New York City during that time, which is yeah, wild. Fuck pinball. Yeah, he hates that, but he was actually one of the earliest proponents of cannabis use. Turns out he wasn't as much a stick in the mud as we thought. I was going to say, this man isn't (laughs) only a fun killer. Right? Hates pinball. (laughs) Yeah, but loves weed, apparently. (laughs) Loves weed. In 1944, he started the LaGuardia Commission in New York, whose goal it was was to prove that all of Anslinger's BS was indeed BS. Uh, They did studies to prove its lack of addictive qualities and that it does not cause violence or insanity or hypersexuality. And of course, this evidence was eventually presented to Anslinger, who obviously did not care. He didn't give a shit. No, did not care. But okay, shout out to Mayor LaGuardia. So in 1939, the song Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday came out. And if you're unfamiliar, this song talks about and criticizes racist lynchings, which is a pretty bold subject matter for the time, I would say. And Mm -hmm. again, if you're unfamiliar, Billie Holiday was a black jazz singer at the time. I believe the song Strange Fruit is sampled in a Kanye West song, but I can't think of the name of the song. But I'm pretty sure it is on the album Yeezus. Blood on the Leaves. Yes. Which is, okay, I am a Swifty, but that was a pretty good album. I never listened to that album. Yeah, it's not bad. So anyway, that Blood on the Leaves by Kanye West samples the song, if you've heard that. So Anslinger did not like this song, okay? Anslinger obviously did not like this, like, number one, because he's a huge racist. And he also did not like Billie Holiday because she did, unfortunately, struggle with substance abuse. So Anslinger really, really didn't like the fact that this singer had a platform. There is ample evidence that an agent was assigned by Anslinger to begin tracking Billie Holiday, although some historians dispute this, but yeah, it is believed that in her last few years of life, she may have been being tracked. I don't know exactly what they were looking for, but... I don't like that. That's terrifying. Holiday was unfortunately very ill by the 50s with cirrhosis of the liver due to many years of alcohol abuse. Narcotics agents raided Holiday's hospital room and she was handcuffed to her hospital bed where she would later die. In her final hours, Anslinger demanded that she no longer be allowed methadone to curb her pain or withdrawal symptoms and she passed away like that in 1959. That's a tragedy. Pretty fucking horrible. Yeah, this guy is actually the worst. So luckily from here on out, he kind of fades into the background. He retired in in 1962, and the FBN was absorbed by the the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, in 1968. It has been reported, although 
kind of dodgy finding any reports of it online, interestingly enough. It has been reported that Anslinger did unfortunately suffer from mental illness toward the end of his life, for which he was hospitalized, and his paranoia centered around addiction being contagious and needing to quarantine away from drugs. Interesting. Yes. That adds a layer, doesn't it? It sure does. He eventually began to suffer from other physical ailments for which he was prescribed morphine. That's right. The hard stuff. And it gets weirder. In the 50s, Senator Joseph McCarthy, yes, the communism one, was heavily addicted to narcotics, and Anslinger started providing the morphine to him in order to avoid McCarthy outing Anslinger as using narcotics to the world. This is proven. Like, this really happened. Like, McCarthy McCarthy was blackmailing him, basically. So McCarthy was addicted to narcotics. Anslinger started to give him narcotics so that McCarthy wouldn't out Anslinger as also using narcotics. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Not cool for someone to do in government, but like also I do, I, I can appreciate the karma that happens. And here's the kicker. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was paying for that morphine that was just going straight to Joseph McCarthy until 1957. Yeah. That's our tax dollars. Yeah. Wow. And before we leave this section of history, I just wanted to mention that cannabis was designated a Schedule I drug in 1970. And if you're unfamiliar with drug scheduling, this is a ranking created by the DEA to classify a drug's potential for abuse and its potential danger overall. There are five schedules, so five rankings. Uh, One is actually the most dangerous. Okay, okay. (laughs) And according to the DEA website, Schedule I drugs are, quote, Drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. And for some context, here are some other Schedule One drugs. Heroin, LSD, ecstasy. For some more context, Schedule Two, so considered lower danger than cannabis. Vicodin, cocaine, fentanyl, meth, and oxycodone. Honestly... <laughs> LSD and cannabis are probably the most benign of any of these drugs. And they're in Schedule 1, both of them. Wild. And I have not done drugs. (laughs) I've never done LSD, but I I hear it's fine. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, let's get to some fun stuff. So let's talk about reefer madness. I felt like I couldn't. I couldn't do this episode without talking about the movie Reefer Madness. So okay. Reefer Madness is a 1936 exploitation film, which we'll talk about, about the horrors of cannabis usage. It is the story of high school students who are lured by pushers to try marijuana. Upon trying it, they become addicted, eventually leading them to become involved in various <laughs> Various crimes, such as a hit-and-run accident, manslaughter, murder, and conspiracy to murder. While all this is happening, they suffer hallucinations, descend into insanity, associate with organized crime, and one even ends up ending their own life. Absolutely wild. Here comes the the non-surprise. This movie was originally funded by a church group who was planning to use the film as a morality lesson for its parishioners. But then... It was purchased by a producer named Dwayne Esper shortly after being shot. And this producer intended to turn this morality lesson into an exploitation film. So so exploitation films essentially are a genre that takes like a trend or like something that's really popular or even like fear mongering 
something around fear mongering and they make a, a film about it exploiting this thing which ends up gaining a ton of popularity people don't understand it's actually kind of like satire i was gonna say is it like satire yeah it ends up being kind of like satire so this is one of the first ever exploitation films and this guy is actually responsible for a couple of others that i'll mention since censorship laws at the time had a loophole where you could show quote-unquote inappropriate content as mm-hmm. long as it was under the guise of moral guidance so like what not to do so you could show all of that because the church's intention with this film was to be like hey don't do this but Dwayne purchased this movie and he was like yep moral guidance but really it was like he knew it was camp basically yeah I feel like if you're curious, Google exploitation films Mm -hmm. and just like look at the wiki. Yeah. It's really interesting. It is. And I'm just skimming it like and it. There's a lot here. Yeah. Like there's and there's all different genres of exploitation film. Like the spaghetti Western is considered an exploitation Mm. film. So really interesting. This even says slasher movies are considered exploitation films. True, because they're so kind of like heightened and sort of silly and like fantastical in a way. Right. Yeah. So a lot of movies that end up becoming cult classics are exactly that. Got it. Exploitation films. So he also produced that short film, How to Undress in Front of Your Husband, that I see making the rounds on social media sometimes. It's a satirical video, like, from that time. And, yeah, it's very silly. But, like, if you didn't know better, you could think that it's serious. Like, that's the thing about it. Okay. Yes. So, in 1972, the founder of the National Organization for Marijuana Laws, this is a thing, discovered that Reefer Madness was actually never properly copyrighted. So he began showing the movie on college campuses across California and charging students $1 for entry. He ended up using those funds to donate to California's legalization efforts. Wow. Right? And later that year, the issue was voted on, but ultimately voted down. 33, yes, 267, no, but progress. And this did cause Reefer Madness to enjoy yet another wave of popularity, only this time it was ironic. People were being ironic. Yes. Okay. The college kids understood and they loved how campy and silly the movie was, which launched it into its cult classic kind of level that it is today. In 2004, a studio did kind of like an artistic take on colorizing the film. They used intentionally bright and unrealistic color schemes to amp up the campy humor. And they even made the cannabis smoke like different colors, depending on the smoker's hmm. mood and level of addiction quote oh yes to this day it is still not under copyright meaning it is public domain so you can watch the entire movie on youtube in color or black and white wow yeah yeah it's pretty funny there's a couple of scenes that i watched just like to understand what because i've never seen the whole thing but yeah it was pretty funny (laughs) like it's just so dramatic (laughs) i highly recommend checking it out if you if you're interested So now we're going to move on to decriminalization. 1975, a D.C., Washington, D.C. resident was arrested for cannabis use. However, he disputed the arrest on the grounds that the cannabis helped alleviate his symptoms of glaucoma, which, if you don't know, is when there is too much pressure on your eyes. And he won. Right? This put into place a new program, the Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program, which was established in 1978. It only ever took in 13 patients, though. 
People just come up with random names for these things. I was going to say, like, that does not roll off the tongue at all. <laughs> like, at all. The Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program. So, yeah, it only took in 13 patients. There was a lot of red tape to be able to mm -hmm. be accepted into the program. So people really tried, but it was hard. In 1978, so only three years later, New Mexico became the first state to allow medical cannabis use. Now... It was not exactly legalized. It was still extremely difficult to actually do. It was just basically allowed on a case-by-case -case basis. So it okay. wasn't legal, but it wasn't illegal. It was essentially just decriminalized medically. Yeah. So by 1982, 30 states had done the same. Wow. However, due to some legal nonsense, only seven states of those 30 were actually able to establish medical programs. But by the mid-80s, even those states' programs were pretty much defunct due to how difficult the government made it for them to operate. So even by the mid-80s, still wasn't looking so good. Mm -hmm. Then in 1991, California voters showed strong support for the legalization of medical cannabis. And this resulted in the country's first ever dispensaries finally opening. In at California. The, yes. At the time, they were strictly medical. And they required an ongoing doctor's prescription, actually. And many were aimed specifically at serving the LGBT community, specifically AIDS patients, actually. And in 1992, the country's first dispensary, the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club, was born. Interesting. So by 1996, California became the first state to officially legalize medical cannabis. So it wasn't just like case-by-case -case basis, only AIDS patients, wasn't like that anymore. It was, if you go to the doctor, you can get a medical card, mm -hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. By 2000, several states followed suit. We had Washington, Oregon, Alaska, Nevada, D.C., Maine. Why did I list Nevada twice? <laughs> I like this list of states. <laughs> Colorado and Hawaii. Nevada. <laughs> also Nevada. Also, don't forget Nevada. <laughs> Later that year, the Clinton administration was not pleased with medical cannabis coming to D.C., nor were they pleased that doctors were recommending and prescribing cannabis to their patients. And the president threatened prosecution to any doctors who did so. In the year 2000. Yeah. This yeah. is William Clinton. Yes. A group of physicians came together to argue that this went against First Amendment rights, specifically in states in which medical cannabis is legalized. Because that's crazy, right? Uh, the doctors won the case, sort of. Sort of. The judge agreed that banning recommendation was a violation of the First Amendment, but not prescribing. So doctors would basically only be allowed to recommend cannabis as a treatment, but not actually provide it from here on out. So they can't write you a prescription. They can just say, uh, you know, you might benefit from it. We don't know how you're going to get it. Good I was going to say, well, okay, so you could benefit from this, but we have no way of giving it to you safely. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. So throughout the 2000s, the state of medical cannabis pretty much persisted in that way with a few bumps in the road here and there, but it did remain operational for the most part. Let's move on to how things are kind of currently recreational legalization and kind of the shift in attitudes that started to come with that on november 6th 2012 what happy stranger things day <laughs> oh my it's god november 6th <laughs> i didn't even think of that <laughs> wow colorado and washington became the first states to fully legalize recreational use cannabis yay from that time to now 
23 other states and three U.S. territories have voted to legalize recreational use. However, that does not mean you can walk into a dispensary and purchase cannabis in any of these states. Some states still have not authorized sales. So it's legal, but we don't know where you're getting it. Same thing. Make it make sense. That's just setting people up for failure. Right. Like <laughs> This is so similar to the abortion problem. Yes. Right. You're not stopping abortion. You're stopping safe abortion. Yes. yes. That is literally exactly this. It's so same similar. Thing. It's the same argument. Like, so dumb. I'm so, going to do that. If you make it unsafe, yeah. I'm still going to do that. Unsafely. Yes. Like, right. So, for instance, Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Delaware still have not had sales authorized, despite voting to legalize it years ago. Fun fact, though, New Jersey legalized recreational cannabis in November 2020, but you couldn't actually go to the dispensary until April 21st, 2022. Yes, the day after 420. (laughs) (laughs) I think they did that on purpose. A hundred percent. The first recreational dispensary in the country opened on January 1st, 2014, in Colorado. The crowd was actually extremely mellow. Reporters commented on their surprise about this, which is very funny to me because you're at a dispensary. How do you think the crowd's going to be? People are going to be mellow. <laughs> They're going to be calm, I promise. <laughs> People came from all over the country. It was wild. There's a picture in here of what the inside of the dispensary looked like, just mobbed with cameras and people and media and seemed like a fun day. Due to the swath of legalizations across the country, two things were starting to become glaringly obvious. Number one, a lot of people were serving some absolutely wild prison sentences for cannabis-related crimes, and it was becoming legal, so what do we do about this? Yeah. And num- number two, a disproportionate amount of those people serving sentences were people of color. So here are some examples of this. An analysis done of Texas possession arrests done between 2017 and 2019 showed that black adults made up about 30% of them, despite making up only about 12% of Texas's population. In 2022, it was determined that despite Virginia being the first southern state to legalize adult use, black adults made up about 60% of cannabis-related arrests, even though Virginia's population is only about 20% black. And unfortunately, we are not immune to this in the North. In 2021, a report analyzing cannabis-related arrests in New York City in 2020 showed that about 94% of those arrests were people of color. 94. Now, I know New York City's density of people of color is definitely higher than the places I mentioned previously, but that's nuts. In an analysis done in 2020 by the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, of all cannabis-related arrests in the country, it was stated, quote, Black people are 3.64 times more likely than white people to be arrested for marijuana possession, notwithstanding comparable usage rates. Authors reported, in every single state, Black people were more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, and in some states, Black people were up to six, eight, or almost ten times more likely to be arrested. In 31 states, racial disparities were actually larger in 2018 than they were in 2010. Which is interesting because what that illustrates is that as it was becoming more commonplace for it to be used recreationally, those populations of people were still being penalized at a greater volume. Yeah. Even though it was becoming more commonplace. Yeah. Right. Just terrible. 
And as I mentioned earlier, cannabis use is and always has been a racial justice issue. So what are we doing about it? Well, on December 22nd, 2023, so very recently, President Joe Biden declared a federal pardon for low-level cannabis crimes. Here is a quote from his memo. My intent by this proclamation is to pardon only the offenses of simple possession of marijuana, attempted simple possession of marijuana, which I think is buying, I'm guessing, or use of marijuana, and not any other offenses involving other controlled substances or activity beyond simple possession, attempted simple possession, or use of marijuana, such as possession of marijuana with intent to distribute, or driving offenses committed while under the influence of marijuana. This pardon does not apply to individuals who were not citizens lawfully present in the United States at the time of their offense. And then I just put this um, last paragraph in here just because I thought it was really funny that it was actually in this memo. It says, In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand this 22nd day of December in the year of our Lord, 2023, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 248th. I didn't know that the year of our Lord was like a thing that really appeared on legal documents. It should not. Right? What is that? Why is it that there? It should not. <laughs> Who's Lord? There at all? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this was actually an expansion of a pardon he had already issued in early October. So, what does this mean? Please. You, yes, I have translated. <laughs> if if you were federally charged with possession, quote unquote attempted possession, which again I think is buying, purchasing, makes sense, um, or use of cannabis, you can now actually apply right now for a federal pardon of your charges. I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm not sure if anyone in prison is listening to us, but if you are, you can apply. I'm sorry, but why should anybody have to apply? I don't know, man. I don't know. But you can apply to have your charges pardoned. Okay, but I'll explain the difference between pardon and expungement also, because that's yeah, I didn't know that either. Okay, so unfortunately it does not apply to state charges. However, many states have enacted similar policies and I will list them. So some states have pardons and some states have expungement. So if you're like me and did not know what the difference was, I will tell you. Pardons mean that your sentence is ended, if applicable, and you are restored your legal rights, so you would be restored voting rights, gun ownership, things like that, that normally you couldn't do if charged with a felony. But you would still have a criminal record. So say you go for a job, you still have to list that you have a felony on your record and they, they can still see that. Expungement means all of the above and that the record of the crime essentially disappears or it's sealed. So states slash cities, because... For some reason, there are specific cities on this list who have enacted pardons. Nevada, Washington, Kansas City, Colorado, Birmingham, Alabama, Pennsylvania, Oregon, North Dakota, and Wisconsin. And Nevada. And Nevada also. <laughs> <laughs> those, are, those are states and cities that have enacted pardons. These are the states and cities who have enacted expungements. California, Illinois, New Jersey, New York, New Orleans, Cleveland, Virginia, Arizona, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Missouri. Okay. Cool. That is cool. Yeah. So we live in an expungement state. Pretty nice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So before we start wrapping up, I just wanted to talk briefly. <laughs> I'm excited about this. <laughs> about Purple Palm Tree Delight. Purple Palm... PPTD. PPTD. 
<laughs> so just so you know, unfortunately, Purple Palm Tree Delight is not a real strain of cannabis. Darn. I, I really thought it was, personally. I mean, it's creative. It is. I real I genuinely thought it was real. It sounds like the name of a real strain. So I will be reading the description that is listed on the website Leafly for the imaginary Purple Palm Tree Delight strain. <laughs> what is Leafly? Oh, <laughs> it's like a... a cannabis related website where you can like search for dispensaries they post Mm. articles and stuff like that. okay purple palm tree delight results in full body and mind relaxation an experience you truly must try before you deny medical marijuana patients choose purple palm tree delight to help relieve symptoms associated with running up that road running up that hill running from a demogorgon Pick up some purple palm tree delight weed for those nights where you're settling in on the couch to binge watch your favorite 80s set supernatural drama while polishing off some pineapple pizza. Who wrote this? This is really just Creel House listing. Yes, that's what I'm saying. This is like, I want to start a series of things like this. Where do we keep fun? This is. It's so this silly. Is, I love it. It sounds like people never watched Stranger Things. Yes. So they like Googled words associated with Stranger Things. And they're like, we'll just insert these words. 100%. 100%. Also, uh, Argyle has never run from a Demogorgon. No, he has not. However, I think the most important part of this Leafly page is one of the reviews that I found of the strain. And here it is. This is all in quotes. I saw this in Stranger Things and my fave is Argyle. Honestly, wasn't sure if it was real, but I tried and it was amazing. 10 out of 10, Papa came down to me from the sky, dead ass. He told me that. <laughs> he told me that Byler is canon. I wish I. <laughs> I wish I was lying, because I'm a Malevin stan. Had me high as hell, phew. Wow. If, if you wrote that and you're listening right now, I love you. Chef's kiss. I'm in love with you. <laughs> I was lying because I'm a Malevin stan. <laughs> yeah, he told me that Byler was canon. <laughs> Papa came down Papa from the came sky. came down from the sky. Dead, dead, ass. dead ass. And See, told I, me Byler was canon. <laughs> I know that whoever wrote this is from New York, New Jersey, or Philly because you said dead ass. I'm imagining Matthew Modine like in clouds, all ethereal with wings. Like, yes. Byler is canon. <laughs> and then he just leaves. But you know what? If Papa came down from the sky dead ass and told somebody that Byler was canon, his agenda would be to get Mike away from L so that he could then get L back. So true. Papa Don't trust Papa when he comes down from the sky. He doesn't always tell the truth. No, he's not a, a good man. Don't trust him. <laughs> anyway. Absolutely <laughs> wild. Absolutely unhinged review. I love you. <laughs> Wow. Please come on our podcast, whoever you are. <laughs> anyway. Tell us more things, yes. prophecies. Just and like such. whatever you've seen, just let us know. Leafly suggests that if you would like to try a strain that they think would be similar to Purple Palm Tree Delight and you don't want to time travel or get a bowl cut, it really says that. Please. You can, you can try, and here are some examples. And again, for people who live in recreationally legal states and are above the age of 21. Here are some strain ideas. Granddaddy Purple, <laughs> Sunset Sherbert, or Sherbet, I guess. I don't know. Sherbet. I'm not, not saying Sherbet. That. No, it's Sherbert. It's Sherbert. I don't care if there's no R. <laughs> Sherbet. Okay? Whatever. <laughs> purple Punch, Forbidden Fruit, or Grape Ape. 
I personally think Granddaddy Purple is my favorite on this list. <laughs> Sounds like the mind flyer. Granddaddy Purple. <gasps> Granddaddy Purple. <laughs> wow. There he is. Wow. We've learned a lot. So what does this have to do with Stranger Things? Let's I ta- don't know. <laughs> let's talk about that. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the role of mind-altering drugs and alcohol in Stranger Things, because I think that it is important, given the subject matter. So in season one, and feel free to jump in if I forgot anything, Hopper is seen abusing substances, presumably as a way to outrun his feelings about losing his daughter and his wife. We learn about MKUltra, the government mind control experiments that Brenner and Terry Ives were found to have participated in. These experiments used LSD and THC to attempt to control others' minds. And I didn't mention this earlier in the episode, but THC is the psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, by the way. There you go. Go listen to our MK Ultra episode. That's an oldie but a goodie. It is. I mean, maybe Lonnie, like, yeah. urging Joyce to drink, but, like, not really. Yeah. Okay, so season two, a tranquilizer is repeatedly used to, like, turn off essentially will's connection to the mind flayer in his own mind and nancy jonathan and murray use vodka to illustrate their water it down idea just makes me wonder what was in soteria Hmm. if owens was using a tranquilizer to turn off the connection Mm -hmm. to the mind flayer in will's mind maybe papa was using it why do you think the friendly orderly was so calm Mm, yes (laughs) and also not connected to the mind flayer Mm -hmm. at that time Okay. Well, well. Well, well. In season three, (laughs) we once again see Hopper unfortunately succumb to alcohol abuse to deal with the pain of being stood up by Joyce at Enzo's. Uh, The Russian soldiers use truth serum on Steve and Robin in order to get them to talk. And this is kind of a stretch, but I'm going to count it. The flayed victims have to eat chemicals in order to melt. Sure. (laughs) I guess. Uh, Season four is, of course, our most prevalent season when it comes to drug use so chrissy tries to purchase drugs to help cope with her visions and you know various other issues eddie sells drugs although it is not 100 percent clear if he uses them himself jonathan and argyle are our resident stoners this season cannabis use is extremely prominent tranquilizers and sedatives are often used on l during the nina project arc and we have that scene at the end of season four where Argyle is looking for mushrooms near Hopper's cabin. <laughs> What's he doing? Looks like he's gathering mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so Aww, all such a shame. Right? Ugh, I know I'm annoyed. But all of this being said, it's unclear what, if any, role drugs or mind alteration will play in season five. But I think we have fair reason to believe we might be onto something here. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. We also have fair reason to believe that Argyle is just not in the show anymore for some reason. So I don't know what this this means for any of these theories. Very true. And like, and I don't know if the theories have to die with Argyle's character not being included, but yeah. it doesn't feel like there would be a natural bridge to incorporating it right. without Argyle. I know. So I don't understand. But anyway, right now I think the prevailing theory... With mind-altering drugs and things like that is that they may be the key to blocking out the Vecman. The Vecman. The Vecman. So, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where I sit with this anymore. But with the news Mm -hmm. that they did not call the actor back. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah, Eduardo Franco was not called or contacted about Stranger Things 5. So, 
yeah, there's reason to believe he won't be in the next season, which is very confusing. So I don't really know what what uh, the future holds for him or these theories. But yeah, but I think it's definitely possible. And then last but not least, I wanted to end this with just some inspiring news from real life. So in 2023, the FDA completed an analysis under the direction of Biden to reassess the dangers of cannabis and whether it should remain a Schedule One drug. Finally. The fact that it's still a Schedule One drug. Mm-hmm. Crazy. The FDA's findings stated, quote, while marijuana is associated with a high prevalence of abuse, the profile of and propensity for serious outcomes related to that abuse led to a conclusion that marijuana is most appropriately controlled in Schedule Three. Interesting. So it yeah. doesn't like dilute the ability to abuse it as a drug, which is a very real ability. Yeah. But it's like as far as serious outcomes that you might suffer for the abuse of it. Yeah. Okay. Right. They're they're saying that it's not as detrimental as the other drugs in that category. Sure. In extremely recent news, on January 12th, 2024, two days ago, Friday, <laughs> documents were released showing that the Department of Health and Human Services has acknowledged both cannabis's medical value and that they agree with the FDA. Hmm. The proposal is to move it down to Schedule 3, which, according to the DEA website, contains, quote, drugs with a moderate to low potential for physical and psychological dependence. Interesting. Yeah. Surprisingly, some of the other drugs in this classification are Tylenol with codeine, which is what I was prescribed when I broke my ankle. Ketamine, which you can get with a prescription now in a controlled environment. It is used to treat treatment-resistant depression. And testosterone is also in this category, which I guess physical dependence makes sense. You would become physically dependent on a hormone. Legal experts believe that this move can set a really important precedent because the FDA is acknowledging that states clearly have a say in determining accepted medical uses for different drugs. And this is how medicine advances. It could help with decriminalizing substances like psilocybin, which is shrooms. Mm Mm-hmm. They have proven to help treat depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, many, many other things. And Oregon and Colorado have already legalized its supervised use, similar to ketamine. You you do Mm -hmm. it in a controlled environment. So, yeah, that's that's pretty promising. And I just wanted to end this with a quote from Oregon Representative Earl Blumenauer. It is another step toward the inevitable legalization of cannabis and ending this sad chapter of the failed war on drugs. Awesome. The end. That was so interesting. Yay, I knew nothing. You. I actually really didn't either. I, I learned a lot doing this. Yeah. That was so good. Cool. Okay. That's all we got. All right. Well, I'll see you later, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> next week, what do we have going on? So next week, we are doing another episode that is not related to the chapters. We're going to talk about the real Penhurst. Mm. And then we'll launch back into our chapters after that. Awesome. Yay. Yay. Well, thanks for listening once again. Hope you learned something along with us. Mm -hmm. And till next time, everybody. Stay strange. Stay strange. To keep in touch and stay informed, join us on our StarCourt Study Hall Discord server and follow us on Instagram at StarCourt Study Hall.